Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. I will not read the entire portion there, but the beginning and the end of it, we will start with verse 13. Remember, this is uh, the, the passage that follows upon the uh, parable of the vineyard. Very, very important parable where basically the Lord Jesus was saying that the elites of Jerusalem are planning to kill him. And so we start reading at verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, verse 14 of 12, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Ne then in the next place the Sadducees came and asked him a question about the resurrection. And then a lawyer came to him, a, a, a teacher of the law, and asked Jesus about the greatest commandment. And he answered that question as well. But then Jesus had the last question for them. Verse 35. Then Jesus answered and said, while he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the Son of God? For David himself said by the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore David himself calls him Lord. How is he then his son? And the common people heard him gladly. Then he said to them in his teaching, Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feasts, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnation. This is the word of God.
So back in my own church, I'm preaching a, a few sermons in the light of what we read about the church in North America, that so many are leaving. There's a book just recently published, The Great De-Churching, or something like that. And there are more books on that theme being published lately. So, I preach a sermon on the entire Gospel of Mark. Why do you believe? Because I can't figure it out that you could know why you believe and then walk away. Taking them through the Gospel. Of course, we are preaching on this because we trust that you, are, you love the Lord. You won't walk away, but we have to think about these things. Maybe you have doubts in your heart. Maybe you know of someone who is no longer with the Lord. I know of catechism students that I had 15 years ago who are not walking with God anymore. I see their faces still before me. It's sad. I know four or five of them. So, I preach this sermon again in the same vein. In the light of this great reality that so many have departed from the faith in North America. And today, I want to ask, where do you go when you leave Jesus Christ? Where do you go to? Because you will go somewhere. You're definitely going somewhere. You're not going to float in the air nowhere. You are going somewhere. In this passage we've read, Jesus is juxtaposed with the elites in Israel. And by the way, they're not much different from the elites of our society. It was the elites who labeled people for following Christ, for listening to Him, who pressured them for not following Him. Think of the man born blind who was healed, how they tried to corner Him, to deny Jesus. They're not much different from the elites of our day. For ultimately, if we leave the Lord Jesus, where do we go? We follow the crowd. The crowd that is so skeptical and cynical. And then, the crowd, who do they follow? Well, they follow, for the most part, the elites of this world. And who do they follow? They follow the ways of the world, of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. I hope you will see what great folly that is to turn from Jesus to those who oppose him. For there is no middle way. So notice the sublime answers our Lord gave to them when they came to corner him three times in a row and then coming with his own incredible question to them. And also notice this that when the Pharisees came to corner him, they first flattered him. They said, no one teaches like you. 
You're a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others. You pay no attention to what people think. You teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. Wow, do you know that? The Pharisees could also speak the truth. They did. Now, what is interesting, our Savior did not return the compliment. Did you notice that? What he said? He said, um, where am I now? Beware of the scribes who desire to go around, verse 38, in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at feasts, and who devour widows' houses, and make and for a pretense make long prayers, these will receive greater condemnations. And so th these two uh, sayings actually bracket this whole uh, passage in Mark. Them complimenting Jesus and the Lord not at all returning the compliment. So we will first then look at the three questions uh, that were put to Jesus. The first was about the relationship between, or the, our relationship to the state, to the emperor. Then secondly, our hope, the second was about our hope for the future. And the last one, about what is most important in life. What is the greatest commandment? And as you consider these questions and how the Lord answered, ask yourself, could anyone have given better answers? And then we will listen to the Lord's question and his answer. Okay, the first one, paying imperial tax to Caesar. And that's why I need to get a bill in my wallet here. I will need it. So some of the Pharisees and Herodians came to Jesus to ask him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. Why are you trying to trap me? Bring me a denarius and look at it. And so they brought him a coin and, asked, and he asked them, whose image is on there? What do you see? Whose inscription? And by the way, that was very common from ancient days, that as soon as a new ruler took the throne, he imprinted in his image within weeks on the coins, and all the other coins had to go. Whose image is on there? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's? Queen Elizabeth. So, Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. This is a brilliant answer. Scholars just can't fathom what a wise answer this is. 
he brilliantly avoided two pitfalls, provoking on the one hand the wrath of Rome, on the other hand the ire of the Jewish nationalists, the zealots. He steered nicely between them. But now we may make the mistake to think that Jesus says, give them both an equal share to Caesar and to God. Far from it. Jesus looks at the coin and he says, whose image is on there? Give back to him what is his. A denarius was a day's wage. And this probably referred to the imperial tax that those who were not Romans had to pay. Give to him what is his due. No issue. What was Caesar supposed to do? Caesar had to build roads and build those aqueducts that we can still go and see in the Roman Empire, the old Roman Empire, and, and many other things like pay for his army and all his officials, the army to defend his people and so on. Giving Caesar what is due to Caesar means one thing. His authority is limited under God. Pay your taxes, pay tribute to Caesar, respect the governor, but you fear only God. You worship only the living God. Ultimately, He is the one you obey. Whatever belongs to God, give to God. So what belongs to God? Have you ever thought about that? Jesus could have said, go to the spring, or to you and me, go and look in the mirror. What do you see in there? A little bit blurred, I know. A little fuzzy. But you see there the image of God. So give back to God what belongs to Him. Right? And that is our everything. There is no limits to that. Now, think a little bit what, is, what Caesar is doing and claiming today in our world. We apply the situation to our times. The other day I sat spellbound as I watched an interview with a, a Democratic presidential candidate. Kennedy, you might have seen that. I'm sure he had his facts, you know, in order. It's too risky for him not to have that. But he, he explained something. In the last two decades, Caesar was funding the developing of biological weapons in at least three countries of the world from his defense budget. He had 36,000 scientists working on it. Imagine. He called them scientists of death. They all worked on, uh, in direct contravention of the Geneva Convention, by the way, using new synthetic biology and genetic engineering to create frightening stuff. Microbes, they are called, so lethal they can wipe us all out. And that is 
to keep you safe. So you can feel safe. They made them so powerful that they're immune to antibiotics and therapeutic drugs. And they knew that there will be blowback with every one of these microbes they make, so they have to make a vaccine for every one of them as well. That is what Caesar has been doing for more than 20 years. There is no comparison with what Caesar is doing today and what Caesar was able to do in the Lord's time. And, and, and this Caesar is not even a brute pagan like Tiberius or Augustus. Our Caesar is an evangelical or a Methodist or a Catholic or something like that. Does it not make you shudder? Does it not make the Lord's words ten times more relevant? Give unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Did the Caesar of the Lord's day ever have such power? Could he do just whatever he wished? Well, I think if he tried, he would have met his nemesis very quickly. There is a terrible war waging today. Up to 20,000 go to their death every month. But Caesar and his friends have no appetite for peace, it seems. They just give more money, more money, more money. While his own citizens in his own country suffer. This is what Caesar is doing today. Closer to home, our own little Caesar demands the right to take our children from kindergarten on and teach them the ways of this godless world. Our little Caesar says, your kids are mine. I demand the right to make them into my image and the image of the prince of the air. But Jesus says, give unto Caesar only what is Caesar's. They were never meant to be his. They are God's children. Caesar is supposed to build roads and hospitals and base army to defend us. So to use an idiom of another time, we could say to him, Caesar, in all due respect, we don't need your education. We don't need your thought control. Caesar, Leave them kids alone. For Jesus said, Let the little ones come to me and teach them to give unto God what is God's. So what belongs to God again? Let Caesar and all his friends listen. Everything. Remember that reflection in the, in the spring and in the mirror? Your entire being, my utmost for his highest, says Oswald Chambers. My, all my heart I offer to thee entirely and sincerely was Calvin's motto. There are many duties that we could render to Caesar that would never infringe upon our duty to God. Give it back to him. Render to him what is his even though you disagree with him, even though you like, if you don't like what he's saying, give back to him what is his. But let no government demand of us what we owe to the King of glory and to him alone. Let Caesar have his coin that bears his image, but you, O oh man, never forget whose image you are.
That is what our Lord is saying. Give yourselves to God entirely and sincerely. What an answer. You want to go to Caesar and his friends? Do they really make you feel safe? Then the Sadducees came who say there is no resurrection. Verse 18. And they asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and dying and left no offspring. And the second took her and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring. And the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. 23. Therefore in the resurrection when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, are you not therefore mistaken? Because you do not know the, the Scriptures nor the power of God. And when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But concerning the dead, the, that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Jacob, and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. So that was the second question. Well, this one deals with an even greater issue. Our hope for the future. It seems as these Sadducees, the Sadducees were the opposite of the Pharisees. It seems they were on the more liberal side in society, more influenced by the world where the Pharisees tried to preserve all the traditions. They were on the conservative side. And it seems as if they have trapped our Lord. The resurrection sounds absurd. A man... Or a woman had seven husbands. I will not explain that Old Testament idea of the levered marriage. Ask your pastor, he will explain that to you. But you, you see the story, this woman had seven husbands. So now they ask, okay, who's going to be the lucky one in the life hereafter? Number one, two, three, or seven. At least they understood that polygamy, something like that, is degrading and humiliating, good for them. And they assume a marriage must be monogamous, good for them. So which one will be her husband? They wanted to prove, and you hear that so often from the new atheists, that it's absurd. It's absurd what you're saying about the life to come. Ironically, they seem very modern and sound very modern. Do you know how many times I've heard from 
good Reformed Christians, also as they grow older, that what they look forward to is to see grandma again, or my deceased husband or child. And that is about it. That's about it. For the rest, we don't look forward too much to the resurrection. It sounds a bit like the Sadducees, whose thoughts cannot ascend much beyond this life. And then parishioners would even ask you, Pastor, will we recognize each other there? And you wonder where this question comes from, possibly. The idea that, that is so deeply uh, ingrained in our consciousness in the West that people will, will be disembodied spirits, maybe floating around, uh, uh, playing harp as angels, where does this idea come from? Not from Jesus and the apostles, maybe from the Middle Ages. But nonetheless, the Lord is refuting all those kind of ideas, and we'll come to that. But the Sadducees want to point out this is absurd. This idea of the resurrection is absurd. Now, if you go a little bit further, and you would ask a Buddhist, about the life to come. Well, what will he tell you? You will just be born into something else next time when you die. Depending on how well you lived your life, you will be re recycled. You will either go up or go down in terms of your new life, your reincarnated life. Ask a Muslim, and if he's honest, he will tell you, none of us really know, because only Allah knows. But oh boy, oh boy, if I'm ever going to go to paradise, what a place it will be of wine and women under everlasting palm trees. That's their hope for the future. And our atheist friends, they will tell you, you will go where your dog went last time when you buried it. You will just cease to exist. So that's where we go when we leave Jesus. Either one of these. A sensual paradise, which is nonsense, to be recycled, or just to be gone. But Jesus said, had you known the scriptures and the power of God, had you known the Hebrew Bible, Sadducees, and the power of God's Spirit in your life, you would have had hope. Paul, every stood trial, have you read the last part of the Acts? Every time he says, I stand here because of the hope of Israel, the hope of the resurrection. And that is not to see grandma again, by the way, in all respect. That is much more glorious to see Him, our Savior, like He is, to be with Him and be changed into His likeness, to be like holy angels, not to be angels, but to be like the angels. We won't need anything like food and sexual relations. We don't have to procreate anymore. And sin and suffering and those things and sorrow will be gone forever. God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And you won't lose your identity at all. 
there will be Abram, Isaac and Jacob and, and all the saints of God that you read about in the Bible and hear about in history who passed in Jesus. And you will receive a crown and robes of white linen and inhabit a new creation with our Lord. And we will share in His image, the image of the heavenly man, who was definitely no anonymous spirit after His resurrection, but a spiritual man whom Thomas fell down before and Mary clung to, who made breakfast, breakfast for His friends on the beach. You want to leave Jesus? Where do you want to go? For a meaningless existence? For no hope? What we should do, good Reformed Christians, is to meditate more on the Christian hope than we do. On our inheritance. The inheritance of the saints. And we will have so much more joy and peace and power. For our Lord is soon about to appear on the clouds. And our lives are hidden with God in Christ. But now let's see the last question. The greatest commandment. One of the teachers of the law came and asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? And the most important, Jesus answered, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, He is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, mind, and strength. You know it. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said. There is no commandment greater, the lawyer replied. And Jesus answered him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And no one dared to ask our Lord any more questions. You are not far. Why? All he has to do is to come to Christ. We may know so many good things, but without coming to the Lord Jesus, we are still not in the kingdom. What is this man asking Jesus? He's basically asking him what is most important in life. That is what he's asking. There were 613 commands in the Torah. Which are the most important? I'm not sure if anyone was put on the spot like Jesus was. It seems like the first time. He had to think right there. What is the most important? I'm no, I'm, I'm sure he thought about it many times. But nonetheless, so we could ask the same thing today, asking anyone, what is the most important thing in life? What would you say? And I'm sure many people, even in this day and time, will say, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart and your neighbor as yourself. And those who don't, their answers would seem trivial and trite. Because this is really the most important. It is so profound what the Lord is saying. You can meditate on it for a lifetime. You won't exhaust it. All the volumes written have never plumbed the depths of the meaning of these words. They are timeless. They envelop the entirety of being. Jesus avoids sentimentalism. 
that you can just be a little bit religious and say you love God. No, it's not possible. Yeah, that love has to be shown in many things and also in loving your neighbor. And he avoids humanism on the other. Oh, I'm just doing good. I love social justice. No, that love should be born out of your devotion to the triune God. Whoever has found God, said Bonifer, will also find his brother. So where do you want to go? Which other maxim or uh, great principle do you want to follow? Who is offering you anything better? Let me give you again a couple examples. The fires were still burning in Maui, in Hawaii. The people still weeping. When the developers came with their checkbooks to make a few bucks out of the misery of others, you ask yourself, how is this possible? How can anybody descend so low? Because they have lost all sensitivity and have given them over to sensuality and greed. Back in my old country in June, the leader of the third largest party, a communist, chanted, kill the Boers, kill the farmers. He did it many times. 100,000 supporters did the same. I'm not even sure if Hitler would have done that so openly and blatantly. And far across the ocean, under the shadow of the Statue of Liberty, the New York Times could say, good song, keep on singing. My own family live on farms there. The whole country has been stained with their blood. That is the kind of people you're going to. If you leave our Lord and Savior, would the royal command allow anything like this to go to Maui to buy the land of those poor people or to shout to kill others? Love does the neighbor no harm. And yet, this is what people are leaving Jesus for. But thank God, this is why we would never leave. And why many are coming from all over to the Son of God. And so while Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, why do the teachers of the law say the Messiah is the Son of David? Speaking by the Holy Spirit, David declared, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David himself calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. How is it David calls him Lord, Psalm 110, the Messiah who is seated at God's right hand in heaven, a divine figure, you would agree? Of course. And yet, he is the son of David. That means he's a man. He's born of David. He is God and man. And who is God and man? It's in your own Bible, Jewish people. 
it is Emmanuel, God with us. Hallelujah. You have just agreed that the Son of Man is God's own Son, the Son of David. So who can teach with such integrity and heavenly authority, not swayed the least by men, but teaching the way of God in truth? Do you feel safe anywhere else? Do we not say with Peter, Lord, where shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And so, in closing, listen. Listen again to Mark 10, verse 38 through 40, or rather, Mark 12, 38 through 40. Beware of the scribes who desire to go around in long robes, love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues, and the best places at the feast, who devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive a greater condemnation. They have had their reward. It's no different today. Beware of the ruling class, the corporate elites, the tech giants, the entertainment bosses, the financial gurus, the media pundits, the talk show hosts, the business tycoons, the military contractors, the great scientists and scholars, and even the religious clergy who oppose Jesus. They are just the same today as they were back then. Watch out for them is what the Lord is saying. They love to walk around in the finest clothing, to catch the limelight, to see their pictures in the paper, to be at the very best restaurants and hotels and islands. And they devour widows' houses. Watch out. Share this with whoever you know who wants to forsake our Lord and marvel at your Savior who not only gave his life for us on the cross out of love and rose from the dead, but who is teaching us every day from this pulpit, every Sunday, and as you read the Bible, with heavenly authority. God bless you. Amen. Come, let us pray together. Lord, our God, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you spoke so clearly. doesn't matter where the, the questions came from, left or right. You answered it sublimely. We can just marvel as we listen to you. And we pray that we will devote our lives to you sincerely and entirely. We thank you for the resurrection, the hope of the resurrection, and we praise you that we know what is most important in life. Help us to live by that rule every day. Oh God, so bless your people and help us here 
to be your instruments to warn others against the leaven of the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees. Oh God, hear our prayer and be glorified in our hearts. For Jesus' sake, amen.